Hi everyone. Today we are trying a slightly different format. I'm Dror Poleg and I have with me today a special guest, my friend Zach Valenta. Zach is a software developer, a reader, a writer, and someone who's very interested in the same topics and themes that I'm interested in. And we thought that it might be interesting instead of just reading you the audio version of my articles as I do once or twice a week to actually try to have a conversation about them and see if that format is more fun and more valuable to you and hopefully for us as well that we learn something from it by diving into a topic together rather than just reading my, my prepared notes about it. So Zach, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Glad to talk about the article and yeah, probably like a lot of the people who read your work in an individual article, there's a lot of big ideas. So I feel like this format will be good to go through all of them and dive a little bit deeper into each one. So what should we talk about today? We're going to talk about why it is time or not for a national success fund. All right. Yeah. So that's an article I wrote about a month ago, which we discussed a little bit. Yeah. So let's dive in. So there's a lot going on in this article. If you had to walk the reader through it again, short as you can, what are, what's point A, B, C, D? How do we get to the conclusion that you got to that we need a national success? When I look at the economy today, I think even data from a few days ago, we have in the U.S. at least unemployment at record lows. So, you know, almost mm -hmm. everyone's got a job, definitely everyone that wants to work. And at the same time, I think two thirds of the population are living paycheck to paycheck, including about half of people who earn six figure salaries. So something feels off, like the economy is humming. In aggregate, it's even growing, it's producing things, but individually or beyond the kind of high level aggregates or averages, it feels like there's too many people who are not enjoying the fruits of innovation for various reasons. I felt like it's time to explore some more radical models. People are talking about let's tax more, let's tax less, let's have more public education, less public education, a lot of like important discussions. But I feel like we're economically and technologically in uncharted territory. And in response, we need to explore ideas that haven't been explored or at least haven't been tried yet. One of those ideas was treating innovation the same way some countries treat natural resources, where, you know, historically countries that hit the jackpot and tend to suddenly become very wealthy very quickly or have certain sectors that suddenly boom off the charts to the moon, etc. That tends to create all sorts of problems, social problems, economic problems. And but most notably, it tends to actually erode the existing institutions of those countries to make their governments worse, whether it's more corrupt, less efficient, less disciplined in terms of how they budget, more short term oriented in terms of spending the kind of lots of money that they suddenly make without kind of thinking of whether they will have so much money down the line or how to invest that money for the long term. So I was inspired by this notion to look at countries that had a glut of natural resources, especially a sudden glut, and to see what the best among them have done with it. So that's what the article is about. And just to take the readers back to the text, what is the, what are the countries, what are the situations that prompted this idea? You're talking about resource curse, the overlap potentially between treating something like oil or natural gas, mm -hmm. and innovation the same way. What are the countries that 
wrong about this thought. So economists, I think earlier than the 90s even, but in the 90s, Free Sachs and Andrew Warner, two prominent economists, published a study that showed that countries with what they call abundant natural resources actually tend to have slower economic growth. This phenomenon was later been described as the resource curse, which basically means that countries with a lot of natural resources tend to have also less democracy, worse development outcomes than countries that actually have fewer resources. So there seems to be a challenge in absorbing a windfall of natural resources. It, it affects primarily poorer countries. A lot of the developing countries or undemocratic countries in the world are countries that are actually very rich in natural resources. And because of that wealth, both historically, they attracted colonizers and people who came and messed up their countries. And even after their colonizers left, and even after the colonizers maybe in some cases even tried to help, these countries struggle to, to develop the institutions that, that, are, that lead to basically broader economic growth and other kind of good things that government can provide, like good education, good health, personal safety. But beyond those developing countries or kind of post-colonial or previously colonial countries, even wealthy countries and former colonizers, let's say the Dutch, the Netherlands, suffered from a very famous incidence of the same problem. So in the 60s, the Netherlands started producing and exporting natural gas from a massive new field that they discovered in the northeast of the country. Demand for Dutch gas drove up the value of the local currency. And because the local currency became so expensive, a lot of other export-oriented industries in the Netherlands basically became uncompetitive because the stuff that they were making became so expensive which led to essentially a recession in the economy. So while their gas sales were booming, the Dutch suffered from what economists now call a Dutch disease, which meant that massive success in one sector basically undermined the economy's overall long-term prospects. And this same massive success in one sector is what we're currently seeing in, in the U.S. in particular, when you look at the technology sector with its overwhelming success. But that means we have to think about how that success actually affects the rest of the economy and how we can ensure that it affects it in a positive rather than a negative way. And to your point about everything getting more expensive, really touching on the current moment, in the article that gets us to another big idea that you're wrestling with about, so we have the Dutch disease and then we have a cost disease. Say more about that. I think it's easy for people to think about, okay, a company, or sorry, a country that is has an economy that is very intensive around a few sectors, it's easy to see how that could skew outcomes, skew political institutions. Mm -hmm. But how are things getting so much more expensive, the middle class, the lower class, even the upper middle class in countries like the U.S. that have a very diversified economy? Yeah. So in the previous point, we spoke about the impact on exports, so that exports become expensive because the local currency becomes strong, which we can see in America as well. The dollar is very strong for various reasons, which means that most countries on earth don't import a lot of American-made things because they're just much more expensive than stuff that is made elsewhere. Even if labor costs are more or less the same, just the currency effect means that buying stuff that was made and is sold in dollars means that it's much more expensive than things made in most other places, not just compared to China, but even compared to a lot of parts of Europe or even all of Europe. But then we get to the impact on people within the successful country itself and their cost of living and what happens to them. And here we come across another important idea from the history of economics, the idea of cost diseases. So in the late 60s, two economists, William Baumol and William Bowen, conducted a study actually about the performing arts industry, about theater and ballet. And they're trying to figure out, they're actually commissioned to figure out why that industry is always in constant financial trouble. 
even though it produces things that people seem to want and that even people pay for. And it still gets a lot of subsidies, but still it's always in financial trouble. But what they ended up discovering is a dynamic that actually affects the overall economy, not just the performing arts. And the dynamic was that when some industries in the economy become more productive, other industries necessarily become more expensive. Standard economic theory predicts that when you have higher productivity, that leads to higher wages. So people get paid more because they're more productive. They can produce more output in the same amount of time, so they get paid more. And productivity, of course, increases when you adopt new methods, when you acquire new skills, or when you have new tools and technologies. But Baumwell and, and Bowen noticed something unusual. So in the performing arts sector, salaries actually continued to increase, even though the industry as a whole didn't become more productive. So the number of people and man hours or woman hours or person hours required to produce a show remained the same as 20 years earlier or 50 years earlier, but the costs kept increasing. So as a result, organizations that employed performers were under indeed constant financial stress. Now, if you compare this to the, let's say, automobile industry or like real industrial companies, so labor and other costs in those industries have also gone up there. But there they've gone up because companies in the, these sectors were constantly becoming more productive. They're able to do, produce more stuff with fewer people or to maintain the same amount of people, but to produce much more stuff. So there the kind of standard economic theory seems to apply. People are becoming more productive, so they get paid more. But in the performing arts sector, people were not becoming more productive, but still getting paid much more. Today, when, a, when an orchestra or a ballet troupe or a hospital or a school hires an accountant or an administrator, they are competing in the same labor market as Toyota or another in industrial company that actually has become much more productive over the last 30 or 50 years. They're also competing for the same resources with them. And they're basically forcing those not as productive sectors to pay more for labor, for land, for resources. And for that reason, costs are going up in industries that are not becoming more productive contrary to what classical economic theory would have predicted. So people in those industries get paid more, even though they're not becoming more productive. So that's the cost disease. And to connect it to where we started, it basically means that if you have one industry or various industries that are becoming more productive, that are booming, that drives up the cost of doing business for everyone else in the economy, more or less. Okay. So let's take it from, we're talking about Bowen, Toyota, the seventies, it's not 1970 anymore. You know, Japan for everything. Where is this coming from in the current economy? And you bring in two other economists here to tie Bumble to 2023. Why is the economy doing so well? And yet everything seems to get worse. Yes. So far we spoke about the countries as a whole, but in 2019, two PhDs from Yale, Doris Kwan and Olav Sorensen, wrote a study about what they call the Silicon Valley syndrome. And they basically set out to explore how the tech boom mostly in the Bay Area, affected the broader economy around San Francisco. And in their paper, they describe how an influx of venture capital investment can result in some type of like a regional Dutch disease, which means that what they saw is a dynamic where the booming tech sector sucks talent away from other sectors. It drives up the cost of doing business. So again, of real estate, of service providers. It makes it difficult for anyone who's exporting services from that region or selling anything other than tech to compete with their peers in the region. So again, to hire an office, to lease an office, to hire people, to pay the bills. As a result, other white collar employees in any profession other than tech basically gets crowded out of the region because they can't afford to live there. 
or to send their kids to school there. So that actually eliminates a lot of other middle-class jobs in the region. So anything that is not tech gets like eliminated or at least encroached on. Meanwhile, rising salaries in the booming tech sector lead to higher spending by some people, the people who made a lot of money in tech, which increases demand for local services, like things like fancy restaurants, personal trainers, sporting events, shrinks, orchestras, which actually results in increasing the number of working class jobs. So it means that you, a smaller group of people working in tech that now make much more money than the average white collar person used to make in that region. And because they consume more services, they create more jobs, but they're more working class, relatively lower paying jobs. So in other words, the middle is disappearing and you have a growing class of working class people or people working in service jobs and a growing, but still relatively small layer of people that are making much more than the average white collar worker. Now, in addition, venture capital tends to have an uneven effect on salaries. So VC-backed companies tend to pay more than non-VC-backed firms for high-skilled employees. And at the same time, VC-backed firms tend to pay relatively less for less skilled employees, which is interesting. As venture-backed companies, they pay a lot to their programmers and executives and product managers, but they also tend to rely more on contract workers and on lower-skilled people for a lot of things, whether it is cleaning or security, but even data entry and all sorts of mechanical Turk-type tasks. So they have armies of people, but relatively low-paid people. Twitter, by the way, let's say is a great example of that. They fired 80% of their workforce and now have, let's say, around only 2,000 people who work there. At the same time, they're relying on thousands of contractors to do all sorts of things. And those contractors are probably earning less than the average white-collar person used to earn in Silicon Valley, and many of them are probably overseas as well. So to sum it up, Quan and Sorensen called this phenomenon the Silicon Valley syndrome, basically describing how an expansion in the number of the highest and lowest paying jobs ends up gutting the middle class and creating an overall increasing inequality while the middle class disappears while the poor don't do any better, but you just have more of them and the rich get richer. Okay. So that seems like a pretty grim state of affairs. Maybe this is why your solution is not on the order of let's raise taxes 5%, let's lower taxes 5%. You're, how do you get to a solution that's so sweeping? That's so before I even go to the solution, like so far I described the problems that the tech industry creates. We can say some nice things about it as well. Innovation does create wealth that can be spread around. At the moment, maybe we're not spreading it the right way. It creates also directly innovations that just make people's quality of lives better in terms of the quality of the housing we have, the cars we have, the phones we have, the medical devices that we have, access to services that we have. Wealth and innovation does benefit everyone, but maybe not to the same extent. But even with this story, even if you're just saying, never mind the poor, never mind inequality, let's just keep innovating. Even if you're just trying to do that, there's a problem here, which brings us to another idea, the idea of the tragedy of the commons. So here too, economists and ecologists have been talking about what they call the tragedy of the common, a term termed by Garrett Hardin that basically describes a situation where if you let individual people access some kind of public resource or a common and let them act in their own interest, by doing so, they will actually deplete that resource or destroy it. It's very easy to see in the physical world. Let's say there's a nice park. If everyone wants to go to the park and enjoy it, they'll end up destroying the lawn unless they restrict themselves or limit how they use it. If everyone overfishes, we're going to run out of fish unless we regulate how much we're allowed to consume. But this same idea 
you can actually apply it to the world of innovation and talent. Currently, we have a tech boom in the US and elsewhere. And that tech boom relies on people, on people being healthy and being educated and having access to opportunity and having access to places or companies where they can make the most of their talents and giving them the infrastructure for that. The problem is that we're starting to face a form of tragedy of the commons when it comes to talent or to human capital, where all of these diseases of success that we just discussed basically also mean that people today in America and again elsewhere as well are less are getting worse education their healthcare outcomes are worse life expectancy is getting lower in the US and people suffer from all sorts of diseases it's harder for them to access economic opportunity and to live in the places where they can access the best jobs and apply their talents to their full potential because those places are becoming so expensive and exclusionary which basically means we're setting ourselves up for a tragedy of some sort where we're not able to sustainably produce talent at the same levels that we produced it before. So we're running out of talent as well in a funny way. So we're worried about two things here. One, the costs of tech's success. And second, the fact that we might run out of that success because we're not harvesting our talent, let's say, sustainably. And we're not making sure that we're producing enough new people that are healthy and well-educated and are able to access opportunities. So that's the third point. And so what is your proposal to this and how does it get us past that tragedy of the commons and get us past the Dutch disease, get us past bottomless policy? Yeah. So I've been toying with an idea. I can warn in advance. I don't think that's the single one and maybe it's not even the only or correct solution at all, but I think it, it starts a conversation. So I because of those kind of an analogies between natural resources and human resources, I looked at a country that did manage to have a glut, a sudden glut of oil and gas, and to put that glut to good use and to develop some institutions around it that make sure that it doesn't suffer from Dutch disease and resource curses and even less so from Baumol's cost disease. And that country is Norway. Before we even get to that, I think when we discuss all of these problems, our leaders tend to generally focus on short-term priorities whether it is because they're beholden to various economic interests or they're just busy fighting each other. And that's true for the left and the right. Again, I'm not like coming from either direction. The problem is that our success in many ways make it worse. We see that having a booming tax base can actually cause the government to become less efficient, more complacent, and more detached from reality. And I think California is a great case in point for that. And more broadly, tech-powered success can increase inequality, undermine the quality of life for the majority of the population, diminish the odds of future success because of our inability to produce more talent and to keep people healthy and educated. So this happens through the three mechanisms that, that I described above. And then I asked myself, okay, how do we sidestep these mechanisms? And that brought me to Norway. So Norway, in its own words, this is from the Norwegian National Sovereign Wealth Fund, basically. They tell a story that in the late 60s, they discovered one of the largest offshore oil fields off Norway. And suddenly they had a lot of oil to sell. And the country's economy grew dramatically. And they decided early on that the revenue from oil and gas should be used very cautiously in order to avoid the imbalances that I described earlier. Now, what that meant in practice is that Norway set up an oil fund that is designed to avoid the diseases and tragedies that we discussed. And specifically, that fund takes harvests a lot of the profits from oil and gas. It prevents the government from using more than 20% of oil revenues every year basically keeping government in check and not letting government get used to spending like 
good times will never end. He takes the rest of it and he reinvests it with a long-term view, both financially, just to make sure that the money grows and is kept and is saved for whatever the country might need in, in an emergency. And also socially, so they invest in, in schools, in local uh, public facilities, in things that benefit the whole public over the long term. So that help you have a healthier public, more educated public, and a higher quality of living, living for everyone. It also absorbs, the fund itself absorbs government surpluses. So if the government has a budget surplus, instead of the government just spending it on something, the fund takes it and again, reinvests it for the long term. And the government basically, again, creating an incentive for the government to, to save rather than spend immediately. Now, the fund is not independent of government, at least not 100%. It has all sorts of directors and people that ultimately are appointed by politicians. But there's all sorts of laws and norms that separate it from day-to-day -day politics and short-term consideration. So it's not like a, a wallet that politicians can use, but it's something that the government kind of puts aside and it's very hard to tap into or you can only tap into it in specific situations. Now, what I think is that we need a similar arrangement in countries and states that rely on innovation, particularly in the United States. Basically, harvesting those profits from the innovations we create, from our tech boom, and allocating it in a way that does serve the public, but is not necessarily in the hands of politicians day to day, and that explicitly invests it in ways that sustain innovation, increase innovation and entrepreneurship, give people more, keep them first healthy and educated, and give them maybe some kind of safety net as well so they can continue to experiment and try things. And at the same time, force more discipline and responsibility on our politicians, regardless of whether they're coming from the left or right. So that's the gist of the idea. Dumb question. So in Norway, the fund is money from oil that's sold. In the United States, the money in the fund comes from where, potentially? So from the profits of our tech companies. We're already taxing them. I'm not even going to get into the discussion whether we tax them enough, whether the tax rate should be higher or lower. There's definitely some loopholes that we can close. But even the stuff that we tax, if you look at, again, at a state like California, they have a huge tax base. That means that they started all sorts of programs that actually made the state less efficient, spending more. At the same time, the quality of life of most people deteriorated and the state seems to fail to do basic things because it is so wealthy and because it assumes that good times will last forever. So that's a situation that we're trying to avoid. So to take the money from the companies, so I'm not saying free market, no taxes, I'm saying tax them, but instead of just giving it directly to politicians, give some of it to the government for day-to-day -day stuff and put the rest of it in some kind of other institution that is still under government control, but not under immediate day-to-day -day control and invest them in a way that thinks about the long-term. Long-term, both again, education, healthcare, quality of life for everyone not just in order to take stuff away from the tech companies, but actually to make sure that we can always continue to innovate and have enough great people that are educated and healthy and can access opportunities. So it's something between the government and the tech industry. Or by the way, other industries that may boom in the future. It might be biotech. It might be even in terms of national resources, we had a boom in gas and oil in the last decade in the US that probably we can allocate profits from a little better. Now, to play devil's advocate, and I think it's easy to look at California in all sorts of ways and be mm -hmm. like, oh my God, what a mess. But I've heard, and this is complete, and I verify this, I'm not a resident, yep. but the, the recently pressed on some sort of funding lever for the city of San Francisco and said, listen, you're not getting this bucket of money that you think you're getting unless the streets are X amount clean. 
And in the past month, San Francisco is a lot cleaner. These things can go very bad, but aren't there natural limits on people on the sort of political salience of something where if things get bad enough, good and better incentives will emerge. Yeah. So one, I think to be clear, I'm not saying let's take power, all power away from government and let's not rely on government for anything. And again, Norway is not exactly an example of like a narco capitalist <laughs> society, but I am saying let's not wait for the goodwill or the good wisdom of a leader to finally do something. And even then, I'm not sure what he's doing and how modest or, or radical it would be. But I'm saying let's set up institutions that systematically invest for the long term and don't rely on the comfort level of one politician or another to act for the long term. But let's set those institutions so these things happen systematically, regardless of who's in power, regardless of the political mood. And it's also an effort to not actually pit the public against the tech companies, which is what seems to be happening now in America. And it's also true in the energy sector. So today in America, for example, we have a lot of natural resources with oil and gas, but we're not saying let's exploit these resources and then take the money and invest it in good things. We're basically saying, let's not use these resources or let's use much less of them and become poorer. Now in this, in the case of oil and gas, you can argue either way. Maybe that is the right way. Maybe it's not worth it to pollute the world further, even if it makes us wealthier and helps finance green energy, maybe. But in the case of talent and innovation, it's clearly necessary to continue to innovate, to have an amazing tech industry, to continue to build, to empower entrepreneurs that can grow and become billionaires. But it's also necessary to ensure that when they succeed, that's good for all of us and not just immediately, but good for all of us long-term. So to do that, the broader point is to say, let's not hate the tech industry. Let's not hate innovators. Let's not try to cut people's legs so that they're all the same height, but let's actually create the conditions for more people to succeed and harvest their success in a way that systematically reinvests their profits for the long-term benefit of the broadest possible strata of society. So that's my campaign. Now, I guess to, again, play a little bit more devil's advocate, if we look at the industries that got us into this very problem, you could look at energy, you could look at tech. My understanding is that middle mid-aughts, a lot of people wanted Obama to become more involved in the energy industry, regulate more. And like right the start of the fracking revolution, he just quietly didn't make it an issue and was almost a, took a position that was almost like centrist Republican by default. Is this, we're just going to be hands off and it's going to do, and the industry will progress as it will. And what we saw from that was a boom. Tech kind of famously in its early days was a very, almost like quasi libertarian orientation, just wanted to be as far from government as possible. We've almost gotten to the current state of the tragedy of commons by having the least amount of government involvement in these industries. What's to say that, uh, I see that as a potential tension. We want to mitigate the problems that they've created by having more government involvement, but that could that also just kill the golden goose? And we're going to have the funds from these industries be put towards more long-term sustainable ends, but the engine itself might be running at 80% thereafter. Yeah. So I'm not calling for more government regulation of, I'm also not, I'm also not speaking against it here, but that's, I don't see it as key to, to, to my point about the national success fund. 
I see more of us using the taxes from these companies more efficiently with a systematic bent towards the long term. And I think that would increase innovation because, again, we will produce more people that are healthy and educated and have access to opportunity. And I also think it even ties to immigration. It would allow us to absorb more immigrants, so not just to produce more human capital, but to import more human capital or attract more human capital from around the world because we will become less of a zero-sum society. And I think when you're less of a zero-sum society, it's easier for people to welcome immigrants. They don't feel that whoever comes here is taking something from me, but they can see how by attracting the brightest people from all corners of the earth, my society is becoming wealthier, which means that I have access now to better schools, to better parks, to better healthcare, to better all sorts of things because the fruits of success are harvested and distributed more efficiently through this fund mechanism. So that's the goal here. There's something that I see, again, with economic training, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm like, I want the smartest people in the world to come to America because I want America to be wealthier. But I also totally understand why people resist it. And to be honest, I also feel the cost of other people's success. Living in New York City or in the New York Metro, everything I do becomes more expensive because some people here are making much more money than they used to. So my schools, my supermarkets, my housing, my taxes, everything is going up and it's squeezing me as well. So I'm also looking at that. And again, I'm, I still remain a pro-immigration, but I can definitely understand where people's animosity and anger comes from and where that feeling of I'm being squeezed out of what I had. And there is a pie here that is not necessarily growing, or at least if it's growing, my piece of it is not growing. So I don't want it to grow because as it grows, it seems to make my life worse rather than better. And I think to be a healthy and successful society, you must both ensure that the piece of the pie grows for everyone and also that everyone is aware of it, that it's growing. But again, that everyone will want the mm -hmm. pie to grow and will want us to get more <laughs> premium ingredients in as much as possible. <laughs> and at the moment, we're not there, which damages everyone. It damages the tech industry as well, not just the rest of society. People hating the tech industry and politicians cracking down on it, I'm sure it's not what the tech industry wants either. And, and again, in, in terms of tech, the case is also simpler, unlike with energy, because we're dealing with people at the end of the day. They're not polluting. They're not doing anything wrong. There's no trade-off here. Everyone agrees that we want to have better education, better, better public spaces, better healthcare for everyone. And by the way, that fund might finance public education. Maybe it will fund, finance public healthcare. I didn't even get into those discussions. Maybe those are the things that are needed now. But at the moment, even if we want them, it's clear that the government cannot finance them at the moment, regardless of who's in power. Yeah. So where did human psychology, how do we, make, how do we create the conditions where people can be less zero sum, more positive sum? How do we get, like, when I think about this and I think of the, how do we make this more politically salient? Because when I'm hearing this, I'm thinking of the politicization in the United States of the national in sort of the nation's finances. In 15 years ago, the left was much more comfortable with running a deficit and the right would at least talk about balancing the budget. And if you look at the news now, it's clear that neither side really, both sides have realized that the idea of dealing with the national debt is a political loser and that no, like the citizens, citizenry really doesn't care about it. So how do we get the citizenry? How do we get, if not the citizenry, the people in business, the upper middle class, whoever, to take up this kind of much more long-termist thinking 
at least with regards to having funded this. Yeah, so the national debt is a great example of some of the diseases we discussed. I know that some economists are still arguing whether it matters or not that we have this ballooning debt. But regardless, it's peculiar that at the time of the biggest tech boom ever, and as our country becomes wealthier and wealthier, we're also becoming more and more indebted. It indicates that regardless of whether you're from the left or the right, there was definitely a better way to invest our resources. And it also indicates that our government needs to be more disciplined. Again, if it keeps increasing its debt limit and it cannot function without doing so, then something is wrong and unhealthy here. Or at least it means that we're just assuming that the good times will last forever. We're seeing that other countries, Norway, for example, don't assume that. They're saying we need to save now for whatever happens later. And that's just when thinking about the future. But as I mentioned at the opening, already the present that we live in means that a lot of people are just not benefiting from the strength and the wealth of this country as much as they should. And in many ways, their benefits are deteriorating. Again, people are becoming less healthy. Public education is deteriorating. Public spaces and personal safety is deteriorating. Our infrastructure is deteriorating. And it's something that we shouldn't accept. We should explore ideas of how to how to produce the fruits and how to distribute the fruits differently. And this article was one, one, one shot in that direction, not necessarily the ultimate solution or the best solution, but a way to at least explore the dynamics that are, that basically boil down to the fact that we live in an economy where the more successful some people become, it becomes harder for everyone else to become successful and actually less likely for society as a whole to continue to flourish. That sounds like close to me.